0: Our Father, we come now to Your Word, and the expectation of our hearts is that we might see Christ in these pages and in these words. We know that this book is the revelation of You, Your will, Your nature, Your character, Your love for us, and so we ask God that You today would reveal Yourself to us, and we invite the Spirit of God to be here to minister to us, to comfort us, to exhort us, to rebuke us, to encourage us in and through Your Word, that You might be glorified here amongst Your people. We thank You for this revelation of You, and we commit our time now in Your Word to You and ask that You would do great things in our hearts this morning, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, We have looked at the introduction of the book of Philippians, the first two verses of chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, a standard introduction from the Apostle Paul, where he addresses this book to the saints who are in Philippi in Christ Jesus. He wishes them grace and peace. And now we dive into verse 3. And what we have in the book of Philippians is a thank you letter. And I want you to to flip over to chapter 4 just for a moment. And I want you to see what it is that was the occasion of this thank you. Because he is writing the book of Philippians, this letter, to the church in Philippi, to the Philippian Christians, and he is expressing his heartfelt thanks. And he is thankful for something. And we find out what it was in verse 15. Now, back in chapter 2, we find out that the Philippian Christians had sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus, to Paul in prison in Rome. And they had sent with him a gift. We find that out in verse 15 of chapter 4. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you notice what Paul is thanking them for? He had received a gift at the hands of Epaphroditus when Epaphroditus came to Rome to visit Paul in Rome. And now Paul is writing a thank you letter. Let me give you a couple notes of of structure of chapter 1 before we sort of dive into verse 3. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 are what you call in composition an exordium. Now sometimes I throw out words like that just to remind you that I, I are a college graduate and I can use big words like that. That's your word of the day. An exordium in composition is the first part of a dissertation where you sort of lay out your thesis and you mention some of the subjects, the themes, and the topics that you're going to develop later on. So it's not just verses 1 and 2 which are what we would call an introduction. It's actually verses 1 through 11 where the Apostle Paul, sort of in a bunch of statements, lays out all of these themes and subjects that he is going to take up later on and develop at some length. And we see mentioned in verses 1 through 11 the subjects of righteousness, which he takes up in chapter 3, peace, which he takes up in chapter 4, thinking on excellent things, knowledge and wisdom and discernment, which he takes up in chapter 3, the form of a bondservant, which he spends all of chapter 2 expounding, the gospel and the confirmation of the gospel, which is what the rest of chapter 1 is about. So in verses 1 through 11, you have him bringing up all of these things, sort of just mentioning them in sort of a, a flash in the pan way, but he's not going to drop them at the end of the first 11 verses. The rest of the book is about that which is just introduced briefly in the first 11 verses of the book of Philippians. So we're going to see some things introduced here this morning that we're going to take up at length later on. Now let me give you an outline of the first 11 verses. In verses 3 through 6, the Apostle Paul expresses his assurance to the Philippians. You see that expressed so beautifully in verse 6, don't you? I am confident, that's assurance, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. All of you probably were able to quote that verse or part of that verse from memory because we quote it all the time. That's Paul's assurance for the Philippians. Second, Paul expresses his affection for them in verse 7. He says, I have you in my heart and I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then in verses 9 through 11, we get Paul's appeal. This I pray. So verses 3 to 6, his assurance. Verses 7 and 8, his affection. And verses 9, 10, and 11, his appeal. He expresses his confidence in them, his affection for them, and then he tells them what it is that he's praying for. Today we're just going to look at verses 3 through, actually 5. It was supposed to be verses 3 through 6, but let me tell you something. Verse 6 is one of the most profoundly beautiful verses, I think, in in, in all of the New Testament. It is up there amongst those jewel of jewels. And when you begin to cash that out, you just can't sort of tack that on to the end of the message and say, oh, by the way, this is what this says and this is what it means. We're just going to unpack that and we're going to mind that verse next Sunday. So today we're just going to take verses 3 to 5 and we're going to look at the first part of Paul's confident assurance in them and his expression of thankfulness to them and why it is that he was so thankful. So let's dive into verse 3. We'll read together verses 3 through verse 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. I thank my God. Eucharisteo is the Greek word. It's the word from which we get our English word. Eucharist, which is what we use to refer oftentimes to the Lord's Supper, to the communion. The Eucharist. And the Eucharist is the word that's used to refer to that element of the communion service where we thank God for the atoning sacrifice of His Son. That's why we call it the Eucharist. When He had given bread, He broke it and gave what? Thanks. It's a thankfulness to God. So when Paul says, "I thank my God," he's not with Paul in thanksgiving to God. It's not just remembering to say thank you to God. Oh, thanks God for that, and then moving on. When Paul uses the term Euchariste, oh, it has more of a, it more approximates what we would call praise or adoration. It's not just thankfulness for a temporal blessing or something received, but it is that heartfelt gratitude, that ambitious sort of adoring, praising thanking love and that's how Paul uses it throughout his epistles i am praising god and thanking god for you all in my every remembrance of you it's that sort of sort of thankfulness hebrews 13:15 we continually offer to god through jesus christ a sacrifice of praise which is the fruit of our lips in giving thanks to his name that's the idea behind the thankfulness now what was it that paul was so thankful for he tells them in verse 3 he says in all your remembrance of me, verse 3. But listen, folks, there's a there's a translation issue in verse 3 that I want to bring you sort of up to speed on. I don't want to get too technical because I'm not a Greek grammarian, and I know that there's nobody here that's a Greek grammarian. I'm not one by any stretch of the imagination, but let me just say this. In the New King James, the King James, the NASB, and the NIV, they all translate it, in your remembrance of me. In other words, they, they see Paul as saying, every time I remember you, I give thanks for you, as if he's speaking of the frequency of his thanksgiving. But there is a grammatical problem in verse 3 that is not sort of obvious to us, and it has to do with whether the in is followed by a dative or a genitive, and this is the difference. If you take it one way, it means Paul gave thanks every time he thought of them or remembered them. But if you take it the other way, it means that Paul thanked God for their remembrance of him. Now, which one is he talking about? Not a huge doctrinal issue, but it is a little bit different. In, the, in verse 3, what the Apostle Paul is saying, I thank God for Your remembrance of Me and every occasion of Your remembrance of Me. Now, how had they remembered Paul? They had sent the gift through Epaphroditus to Paul, hadn't they? And I think that's what Paul is referring to. It's a little vague in the grammar. It can be taken either way. And I think maybe Paul left it a little vague in the grammar for that reason. It, Might be both. It might be that every time Paul thought of them, he thanked God for them. And he thanked God for all of the times that they remembered Him. And so he is expressing his heart of thanksgiving to them for all of their remembrance of Him. All of those contributions and their prayers and everything that they had done to support Him and love Him and show their affection and show their remembrance of Him. I thank my God. I give thanks and adoration and praise to God for You every time I think of You, every time for all the times that You think of me. Now look at the attitude of his thanksgiving. You notice two things. First of all, it was joyful. Paul says that he does this always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. It was a joyful thanksgiving. And that word joy introduces us to one of the major themes in the book of Philippians, which is the theme of joy. Sixteen different times either the verb or the noun form of joy occurs in this epistle. And what is so striking about that is that you are familiar with his afflictions, you are familiar with Paul's sufferings, You are familiar with everything that he endured. And here you have him writing from prison. An epistle that rings of joy. Having been arrested and beaten and spent five years of a long travesty of justice, the whole shipwreck, barely making it to Rome, being rejected by the Jews once he got there. All of that and he writes a letter and what does it ring with? Joy. Rejoicing. And joy. Now how is that possible I ask you? You know how it's possible, don't you? Because intellectually, every one of you knows, my joy is not determined by my circumstances. Isn't that true? But every day is a testament to the fact that we all struggle with that, don't we? That our joy does tend to fluctuate with it if we base it on our circumstances, but we know intellectually, my joy is not determined by the good times and the bad times coming and going. Because joy is not something that the world creates Joy is not something that our circumstances create. Joy is something that the Spirit of God creates within us. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the world may have joy after a fashion. The world may have even happiness after a fashion. But can the world possibly have true joy? They can't possibly have true joy. Why? They're excluded from true joy because they're excluded from the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God doesn't produce the fruit of the Spirit in unbelievers. So our joy is not determined by our circumstances. So Paul was able, in the midst of a Roman prison, after five years of a travesty of justice, after all of that affliction, all of that suffering, all of the false accusations, the beating that he had received, the shipwreck, and all of that, he's able to be joyful. Why? Because Paul was looking beyond his circumstances and focusing on his joyfulness. Do you understand that giving thanks has a way of making you even more joyful? Have you ever noticed that? When you give thanks, even in the midst of your circumstances, it has a way of making you even more joyful. Why is that? Because it focuses your attention on your blessings that you don't receive, or that you don't deserve receiving, whether they're temporal or eternal, and it takes your mind off your circumstances, which you think you don't deserve, but you really do. And so when you give thanks to God, it actually increases your joy. It was a joyful Thanksgiving. Second, it was a prayerful Thanksgiving. In my every prayer for you all, he was praying and He was giving thanks and it was a joyfulness that was connected to a prayerfulness. I think that there's a coincidence there or a coincidental connection between prayerfulness and joyfulness? They go together, don't they? they prayerfulness and joyfulness go together just like prayerlessness and joylessness go together. And, and you, they all three go together. Thankfulness, joyfulness, and prayerfulness. Because when you pray for other people and for yourself, You take your eyes off of your circumstances and you focus them heavenward. And that produces thanksgiving and it produces lasting joy. It was joyful and it was prayerful. Now that's the expression of Paul's thanks. But in verses 5 and 6, Paul gives us the explanation for his thanks. Now in verse 5, what we're given is sort of the immediate occasion for his thanksgiving. In view of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now, and by immediate I mean In in terms of time, this was the most recent thing for which he was thankful. But verse 6 gives us the ultimate reason for his thanksgiving, which is what? He was confident that the God who had begun a good work in them would complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate reason for thanksgiving. But verse 5 sort of is the immediate reason. And we're going to focus on verse 5 because it introduces us to a subject that is going to come up again throughout the rest of the epistle. And what we want to do this morning is this. I want to lay a foundation and flesh out for you this idea of fellowship. And then as we go through the book of Philippians, we're going to be adding to our understanding of what fellowship is, and we're going to see it fleshed out in so many areas throughout the book of Philippians. Verse 5 introduces us to this subject of fellowship. Paul was thankful, and he praised God, and he thanked God, and he was praying for them because of every remembrance of them toward him in view of, Paul says in verse 5, Your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, some of your translations may say partnership. I think the NIV says partnership. The King James, the New King James, translated fellowship because of your fellowship in the gospel. And that is the Greek word in the New Testament, koinonia, for fellowship. That's the word that we use to get our English word fellowship, koinonia. Now, let me ask you a question. I want you to answer this question out loud. I just want you to form an image in your mind. Here's the question. What do you think of when I say the word fellowship? What image pops into your mind? I'll give you a second to sort of crystallize it. Now, if I were to get into your mind right now and see the image that you have, I would be willing to bet that most of you are envisioning some sort of social gathering. Is that true? You're envisioning some sort of social gathering. We have fellowship together, okay? Enjoying tea or coffee with a brother in the Lord, staying around afterwards for a potluck or a meal or taking somebody out to lunch. That's what we call fellowship, is it not? Is that what fellowship is? That's how we use the term. And I would bet that most of you, when I say the word fellowship, are thinking in some way of that idea. But let me suggest to you that that idea of fellowship is to true fellowship what the foam on the surface is to the ocean. Okay, and I'm going to cash out that analogy a little bit. We speak of the ocean and we use the term fellowship, but all we ever really mean and and really have in mind is the foam. And that is such a shallow understanding, and we have debased the word fellowship in our vocabulary and in the Christian church. And I'll confess to you something. I'm guilty of this too because we say this all the time. Come out to the work day on Saturday for the construction of the new facility. We're going to tie rebar. We're going to have some what? Fellowship. Right, Nothing like visiting over rebar to constitute fellowship. Or join us after the service for the lunch, the potluck which is to follow, and we're going to have a great time of fellowship. If you have an unbelieving neighbor over for a cup of coffee, you call that friendship. If you have a Christian over for a cup of coffee, you call that fellowship. If you stay here for a worship service, and you sing, and you hear the preaching of the Word, and then you get up and you immediately leave, as some of you do, you have worshiped. But if you stick around and you visit afterwards, until we lock up and turn off the lights, then you have fellowship. That's the foam. That's the foam. True Christian fellowship is so vastly much deeper than that that I would be willing to bet that 95% of Christians in this country never even get past the foam. And we don't even understand the depth of what real fellowship is. So I want to describe to you what real fellowship is. What is real Christian fellowship? The word koinonia was a word that was used to describe an active participation in something. That's why I like the NASB translation, your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. An active participation in something. Koinonia. It is active. It's not passive. It's not you sitting in a corner observing something that goes on that somebody else is doing. It is you actively participating in what other people are doing. An active participation in something. If it's passive, then you have simply observed it. But koinonia, you haven't koinoniaed, you haven't fellowshipped until you have actively participated in something. And it is a participation. It is something you must get into. It is something that you do. It is something that you enjoy. You say, well, great, that's right. That We participate in coffee. We have fellowship every Friday night before Awana. A cup of coffee in the kitchen. No, that's the foam. Your true fellowship encompasses so much more than that. It goes so much beyond just merely participating in something. It's an active participation in it. So you have to be involved in it. A koinonia is a sharing. It's a sharing in something. Let me, it's not a, koinonia is not a distinctly Christian word. It was used by everybody in those days. Christians took that word and they began to employ it in a way that sort of added a whole new sphere of meaning to it. So it became a Christianized word or a, a word that Christians sort of co-opted or adopted for their own purposes and it took on a distinctly Christian meaning. But in Paul's day, you could use the term koinonia to describe even something that was secular that didn't involve Christians whatsoever. For instance, say John and Harry decide that they want to go into business together. So John and Harry both take their life savings, they throw it into the pot, and they go out and they buy a fishing boat. And they're going to go into the fishing boat business together, the fishing business. They would say in that day that John and Harry had entered into a koinonia. What do they mean by that? They both had an active participation in a business, a common interest. A common goal, a common investment, a common vision. Something that was all theirs that they shared together equally and actively. They had a koinonia in something. So it is a sharing. It's a communion. A koinonia is a communion, a common union. John and Harry have a communion in the fishing business because they both have a common union in that boat and their investment in that boat and their work to make the boat float and have the fishing business. So they have a sharing and a common union. Well, as Christians, we have something that goes far beyond just a fishing boat. We have a whole sphere of communion and sharing and active participation in something that is so much bigger than us and so much bigger than our fellowship, so much bigger than Kootenai Community Church or the Christians in America or even all of the Christians that are alive right now. And we have a communion and a sharing in something altogether. Well, let me give you a few characteristics of Christian koinonia, or Christian fellowship. First of all, you need to understand that Christian fellowship is an eternal fellowship. It is eternal. This, this, this blows my mind, because I can't even wrap my, my mind around this. But Christian fellowship is a koinonia, a communion, that existed before we existed. In fact, there was a people that the Father gave to the Son that Jesus mentions in John chapter 6. That He gave to the Son before He ever created a single molecule or atom or spoke anything into existence. And He established that communion. He established that fellowship. And even right now, we are actively participating in something that existed before we existed. In fact, it is something that belonged to us Something that was ours and something that was given to us before we ever were. Doesn't that blow your mind? That's why Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1 can say you were granted grace in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This communion, this fellowship was yours before the world was. But you're just now in time experiencing it and actively participating in it. Let me tell you something else that will blow your mind. And just sit in your bed tonight and think on this for a bit and see if you can wrap your mind around this before you go to sleep. You can have fellowship with someone that you have never met and never spent any time with. You say, how is that? Do you understand that the Philippian Christians, by the time Paul writes this book, had not seen Paul for six years, and yet Paul says, I am thankful for the fellowship that we enjoy in the Gospel together from the first day until now. It is something that you have with other people, you can have with other people, and you can experience with other people that you've never met, never been around, and never will see. Do you understand that you share in the same grace, the same Gospel, and the same Holy Spirit as the Apostle Paul? Have you ever met Paul? Yet you are an active participant in the Gospel with Him. It is an eternal fellowship. It is an eternal koinonia. It is timeless. It never had a beginning. It was from eternity past. And it will last till eternity future. And you have it with the saints from all ages. This fellowship and this active participation in the church of God. It's eternal. Second of all, it's spiritual. You are the church of the living God. You are spiritual stones built up in Him for a holy habitation. You're a spiritual priesthood. You have communion. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are in Christ so that everything you have and everything you are is wrapped up with Him. You're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He raised you up and He put you there. The communion that you have is not in a fishing business. It's not in a boat. The communion that you have is in Christ. So it is a spiritual fellowship. It's not only eternal, it is spiritual and it is also a sharing in something. A sharing in something. But listen, it's not sharing like two children share a donut. Where you cut it in half and you divide it up equally amongst the two of them. It's not sharing in the sense that something is split or portioned uh, portioned off and each one is given a bit. It is sharing like fish share water. Like you and I share air. Okay? It is likely that since you have been here this morning, you have breathed molecules that somebody else in this room has breathed. Okay? They're probably molecules that a lot of other people have breathed. I hate to ruin your lunch, but that's the truth. We share this air. We don't portion it off and say, this is your air for today, this is your air for today, and this is my air for today. We share our fellowship, not like children share a donut, but like fish share water. We live in it, we swim in it, and we all have all of it together. All of the water is ours as fish. All of the air is ours All of Christ, all of the blessings, all of eternity, all of everything is ours. It's mine and it's yours. And we share it. We don't divide it up and share it. We share it communally. It's a sharing. But fourth, I want you to notice what Paul says. It is a participation in what? In the Gospel from the first day until now. Now listen, friends. Over in chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, "...that I may know Him that is Christ." And the fellowship of His sufferings and the power of His resurrection. Now the fact that the Apostle Paul can speak of the fellowship, the koinonia of Christ's sufferings tells you and I that there must be something deeper to koinonia than what we just see on the surface. Does it I? How does somebody share the sufferings of Christ? How does somebody have fellowship in suffering? How do you enjoy suffering? How do you get into somebody else's suffering so that we actively participate in the sufferings of Christ. Is Paul, when he talks about the fellowship of his sufferings, is he talking about having a piece of cake and coffee together? Is he talking about any kind of social function whatsoever? He is talking about something so much bigger, so much broader, so much deeper than anything we ever typically think of when we say the word fellowship. It is a fellowship in the gospel. That's the key point. It's the Gospel. Listen, it's not a fellowship in your particular theological quirks or my particular theological quirks. It's not a fellowship that is established on the basis of your hobby horse or my hobby horse, your pet little theological doctrines or my pet little theological doctrines. It is a fellowship in what? The Gospel. It's the Gospel that unites us. What is it that united the church in Philippi? It started with a wealthy Jewish businesswoman, upper class, a Roman pagan idol-worshiping soldier, middle class, and a formerly demon-possessed lower class slave girl. What did they have in common? What could hold them together? Absolutely nothing. Ah, except the Gospel. But they have the Gospel in common. And see, churches get into this Churches have this thing, and I say this to the, to the shame of so many churches all across the country. We base fellowship on things other than the gospel. Like when you think the rapture is going to happen. Or if you think there's going to be a rapture. Or your mode of baptism. Or whether you're covenant or dispensational. Or whether you even think anybody should be baptized. Or whether infants should be baptized. Or whether only believers should be baptized. Or what what version of the Bible do you read? Is it King James? Because we're a King James church. Are you a homeschooler? Because this is a homeschooler's church. And not just a homeschooler's church, but certain homeschool curriculums are better than others. Or this is a Bill Gothard church. Or this is a Grace church. Or we're a this church. Or a that church. And if you're going to belong to us, then you've got to be a King James reading, gun-toting, doily-wearing, homeschooling, wingnut, if you're going to feel welcome here. And fellowship can be based on so many different things. But what is it based on? The Gospel. The Gospel. And you say, Jim, I'm a paedo-baptist. I don't care. I really don't. Just don't ask me to baptize your infant because I won't do it. I think it's wrong. You say, I believe there's not going to be a rapture. Fine. I don't care. I'll explain it to you on the way up. I think you're wrong. You say, I believe in speaking in tongues and praying in tongues. Fine, just don't ask me to pray with you because I think it's dead wrong. You say, I don't I don't like contemporary music. Fine, I won't listen to it around you. But if you think that those things are the basis of our fellowship, you need to grow up because you have totally missed it. Totally. Now, if you tamper with the Gospel, I'll be the first ones to throw down the gloves and draw the lines in the sand and contend because then we have no fellowship. Then it's an issue of the Gospel. But all of these other things, push them off the sides. I don't care. But the Gospel is where we have our fellowship. Not what version of the Bible you read, not what view of eschatology you have, not what you think is the mode of baptism. None of those things form the basis of the Gospel. If you have the Gospel right, and I have the Gospel right, and we are together on who Christ is and what He did, and how one gets to heaven, then we've got the Gospel nailed down. That's where our fellowship is. All the other stuff is superfluous and you're my brother in Christ. Because it is a fellowship not in your theological quirks or my theological quirks. It is a fellowship in the Gospel. Can we all agree with that? Do you know how many Christians there are sitting home this morning missing out on the depth of Christian fellowship because they can't find any churches in town or in this area that holds to every little theological quirk the way that they do? Do you know how many Christians already do that? They sit around their home bitter every Sunday morning because there's no church good enough that believes everything that they believe down to the last little minute detail. That is just silly and stupid and so sad that things like that can become the basis of fellowship. It's an eternal fellowship. It's a spiritual fellowship. It's a sharing fellowship. And friends, it's a fellowship in the Gospel. That's the basis of fellowship. None of the other things. None of the other things matter. Not the style of worship, not the order of service, not your view of this and not your view of that. It's the Gospel. Now, how is it that you and I partake in this? Because it's one thing to describe this immense, beautiful, deep, profound, eternal, infinite thing that spans the ages, and it's another thing to say, how is it that you and I participate actively in this fellowship? Well, if we can ask ourselves the question, what did the Philippians do to participate in the Gospel with Paul, then you and I would have a good answer or a good start on the answer of what you and I can do to actively participate together in the fellowship as a church, in fellowship or in koinonia. What does the active participation, the koinonia, actually look like? Well, the Philippians had done a few things. First of all, they had given to Paul. We saw that in chapter 4. They had given to Paul's ministry. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, I think it's verse 26, Paul says, "...the brethren in the churches of Achaia and Macedonia saw fit to contribute, and he uses the word koinonia, which means a contribution or the giving of a gift for somebody else's needs. When you contribute financially to the work of God, you have an active participation in the work that you contribute to. That's why you have to give wisely. You don't give your money to wingnut groups. You don't give your money to false teachers. Because when you do that, you are actively participating in their evil deeds. So you have to be wise with the use of your money. And when you give to this church, you actively participate in the work and the ministry of this church. You have an active participation in sharing the gospel with kids in Sunday school, sharing the gospel with kids on Friday nights, sharing the gospel from the pulpit at special events, in all of the discipleship and the ministry, everything that goes on. All of us actively participate in that work. We coin NIA in it through our giving. Do you understand that you have an active participation in the gospel's advance, in Paraguay, Colorado, Venezuela, and around the world through the missionaries that this church supports. And that your money goes to support. So when you give to a missionary, you have an active koinonia, an active participation with them in their work to advance the gospel through them. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's how deep your fellowship is. What else do we do? Well, we pray. We pray. We find out in chapter 1, verse 19, that the Philippians had been praying for Paul. That's part of what they did to support him. Do you understand that when you pray for a missionary, you pray for a missionary family, you pray for a missionary's work, that you have an active participation with that missionary in the work that he does? How? Because you're lifting their needs before the throne of God and you're participating with them in their work. You're coming alongside of them. You can have an active participation with people that you've never met and never spent any time with. As you take their needs before the throne of God, you are actively participating in their koinonia, the koinonia of the saints, and the advance of the Gospel through your prayers. You pray for this church, and you pray for the ministries of this church, and you pray for the missionaries of this church, you're actively participating in Sunday school and Awana. You don't even have to be there. And you say, Jim, some of this is really good news because all of a sudden I found out I don't even have to be here on a Sunday morning to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. Is that what I'm saying? Not at all. I'm just saying there's so much more to the fellowship of the saints than what you're currently enjoying or currently even thinking about. It doesn't mean that you stay home and say, good, I can stay home in fellowship. (laughs) I'll just stay home and pray for the service and I have an active participation in that. I'm not asking you to neglect the foam. I'm just asking you to dive beneath the foam a little bit into something deeper and stir up a little bit more foam. And now you realize that I pushed that analogy probably just a little bit too far. But it is a good analogy. I'm not saying that you can stay home and neglect these things but I am saying that you can actively participate in them through giving, through prayer. There's another way, through suffering. You find out at the end of chapter one, Paul says that, Paul says, the sufferings and the afflictions that you saw in me and heard to be in me, I know that you're experiencing. Friends, when you bear the reproach of Christ with His church, with His bride, and you bear that suffering for the sake of Christ, you are actively participating in the sufferings of Christ. You have a fellowship in His sufferings. That's what fellowship means. You do it through giving, you do it through prayer, you do it through suffering, you do it through service. When we gather here on a Friday night to to work with kids or when you serve God in some capacity within this church in Sunday school or in helping tear down or set up or any other capacity in which you serve, you have an active participation in everything that's going on. So that Friday nights and our service on Friday nights or our service in Sunday school or our service in building a new facility is not just showing up, getting the job done, and walking away and, okay, my night is over with but our service to the Lord is an active participation in advancing the Gospel as we present the glorious Gospel of God to kids or to whoever it is that we're talking to. And you actively participate in it. We do this through Sunday mornings. Through our worship, through communion, through our prayer together, through ministry and music, through fellowship, through encouragement, through standing around and visiting. Yeah, that's part of it. See, we tend to think of it in terms of this. I have my worship. I have my prayer, I have my service, I have my giving, and I have my fellowship. And that's not it at all. You have giving, prayer, worship, service, suffering, and all of this is your fellowship. All of that is your koinonia. You participate in koinonia together in all of those things. So you can't really, we would say this all the time, but you can't really say, alright, I'm going to go to worship and then I'm going to have some fellowship and then we're going to prayer, pray, and then we're going to worship some more, then we'll have some more fellowship. You don't schedule it like that. You actively participate with the saints of God, you enjoy a fellowship. You enjoy a koinonia. It is eternal. It is timeless. You are sharing the same things that people share that you have never met before. And you actively participate with all the saints of God in something that is so much bigger than anything you've ever imagined. Something that was established and created by God as an act of grace. And you're like a little fish. You get thrown into the midst of this big ocean. And you share it with all the saints of God through all of these different ways that we actively participate. Friends, the degree to which you view your attendance here on a Sunday morning, the service that you render to the Lord, the use of your spiritual gift, your prayer, your giving, all of those things, the degree to which you think those things are superfluous and ancillary and optional is the degree to which you just don't get it what fellowship really is. You show up at 10.45, you leave at 12. And you think you've obeyed God by giving Him an hour and a quarter of your week. And some of you don't see another Christian for seven days. And then you show back up here and you get another hour and a quarter. And you neglect the koinonia of the brethren to the detriment of your own soul and to the detriment of the body of Christ as a whole. Because you're robbing something from you, and you're robbing something from others when you are not vitally connected to His body, which is the koinonia of the saints. You're like a fish who says, I'll jump in the water for an hour and 15 minutes once a week, and I'll jump back out again. Or worse, you're like a fish that says, I'll jump and float on the foam for an hour and 15 minutes, on Sunday mornings, and then I'll flop back up on the dry land again. Don't do that. Don't neglect it. You call this your church family? This is your church family. This is where you're here. This is where you're at. Get involved. Get connected to people. Some of you have no vital relationship with other people in this body whatsoever, and you're robbing from them and you're robbing from yourself. And until you understand what koinonia is, you're never going to appreciate that last statement. You'll never appreciate it. Koinonia is so much bigger than you. So much bigger than me. And we just flop around on the surface and create a lot of foam and think we've done the Lord some good service. And we haven't. You cannot be happy. You cannot be joyful unless you are vitally, intimately connected with a body of believers in Jesus Christ and they are your family. You can't have that. It's no coincidence that the two major themes of this book are joy and fellowship. Because if you remove one, you don't have the other. You don't have a fellowship. You can't have joy. And it's more than coffee. It's more than meals. It's more than just visiting an idle chit-chat. It is an active participation in the work of Christ and the advance of the Gospel that is established on the Gospel itself, which is your entire koinonia. Friends, there's an ocean out there. Dive in. Plumb the depths of it. You'll find your soul healthier as a result of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have created this fellowship that we exist in and that is ours, and it was ours before we ever existed. Thank You that You have called us to participate in it, that You have saved us, and that You have put us in the communion of saints, which is the body of Christ. We thank You for Your love and grace. And God, I ask that there may not be anyone here this morning that would ever neglect so great a salvation and so great a fellowship. God, from this day forward, may we never, ever mistake idle chit-chat and visiting and having a meal together with the true fellowship of the saints. But give us, God, the grace to dive in and to actively participate in this wonderful fellowship that You have established and that You have created in Christ. Thank You that it is eternal. Thank You that it is by grace. And thank You that it is You that has created it and that it is founded on the Gospel. Give us grace, O God, to never neglect that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.